Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. In the last verse we read, here's where our scripture reading begins. It begins on a real happy tone here on my birthday, okay? Verse 6 of Mark 3 says, you want to throw that up for us, Mike? It says, then the Pharisees, after Jesus did this miracle, they went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians, by the way, who were, their, who were the Pharisees' cultural enemy. But you know, the one thing that brings two enemies together is a shared enemy. We won't get into the geopolitical atmosphere right now at all, but we see that with the Pharisees, they're plotting with the enemies against Jesus how they might destroy him. And this is going to be kind of how the narrative unfolds. Um, they will seek to destroy him. Spoiler alert, Jesus gets crucified. All right, this is what's going to happen. If you haven't read the story, Jesus gets crucified. But there's this great thing called Easter where he destroys death itself. And so that's how the story unfolds. So they're, they're kind of, um, yeah, they're, they're wasting their time here with a, 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 a worthless mission. So here's where we pick up. They're trying to destroy Jesus, but Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee, I want you to notice this now. A great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. I want you to notice all the parts of, uh, of the area that they start coming to him from. Verse 8 says, And Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon. It says a great multitude. This is, by the way, now of Jew and Gentile. These are all peoples. Every, every race, every tribe, uh, also every tongue coming to Jesus as a great multitude. Notice this, when they heard how many things he was doing. They had heard it through the grapevine that Jesus was doing some incredible things and they go, I've got to see it for myself. I want to be healed for myself. But notice what it says in verse 9. As they come to him, Jesus told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. So I want you to just imagine like a famous celebrity being swarmed by a crowd and they usually have like their bodyguards, you know, there to, to part the seas and protect them. Um, I think of Kanye for some reason. I don't know why, but he's not a relevant character to culture lately, is he? Um, but I'll go back to that verse, verse 9. Isn't it interesting? Jesus goes, hey, disciples, this is like their first task. I need you to get me a getaway boat, all right? I've got to get out of here. I can't be airlifted, so uh, we're going to have to go via sea. Get me a boat that I can um, be rescued from this pressing crowd that's about to crush me. So they had, this crowd had no concern for Jesus' well-being. Genuinely, they were just trying to get from them what they needed. That's the picture here, okay? The ver uh, verse 10 says, nonetheless, though, Jesus healed many. So that as many has had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And I, I just love that verse. As many, who, how many people did he heal? As many people as had problems came to him. Like, who can come to Jesus and be healed? Whoever's got a problem. Anybody in here got any problems? You're qualified for Jesus. Good news. Verse 11 says, And the unclean spirit, so we see his power over the demonic opposition that has been oppressing humanity, Whenever they saw Jesus, they fell down before him. They cried out saying, you are the son of God. James says, even the demons believe and know who Jesus is and tremble. Verse 12, but he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. This was the wrong way for the gospel to go out through the mouth of a demon. It was going to go out through his healed people and it was the wrong time. 
in the timeline of his mission. Now we get to kind of the meat and potatoes of our study today. Verse 13 says, And he went up on the mountain, Mount of Olives likely, the mountain that he frequented, and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Verse 14 says, And he appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Verse 15, just go ahead and go through it, Mike, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, he, starts to, he begins to name them here. Peter names Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Peter's like, that's me. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, son of, sons of thunder. They were a fiery bunch. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and, of course, Judas, can't forget this guy, Judas Iscariot. And every time Judas is mentioned as the one numbered with the twelve, he's mentioned as the one who also betrayed him. And I love the way this ended. And they went into a house. All right, so this is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for this text this morning, for this gathering, for this moment. We just pause and recognize, as we have already a few times in our gathering, that this moment's a gift from you. You have carved out this time for us to be with you, like these disciples, to come up on the mountain and encounter you, to know you. And that's certainly why we put all the efforts, God, first of all, not just into setting up a middle school cafeteria for church, but also why we start a church, why we're here, why we exist. For you to do what you want, God. To, for you to, to do what you promise. There's nothing more exciting than that. So we just present ourselves as available to what you want to do this morning. We say, God, come. Fill this place. Holy Spirit, be poured out on us mightily. We ask to God that, that today um, you would do the special thing you do in speaking to us specifically. There's a general word in here for us as your church, but there's also some specific things that you, by your spirit, want to say to us. So we invite you to speak, and we ask that you give us ears to hear what you want to say. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I just realized I forgot to ask you to stand for the reading, too. How do your knees feel? They feel nice, don't they? Everybody stand up. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Stand for the sermon. No. All right. Well, as I uh, have mentioned each and every week, studying the way of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, each week as we look at a different passage, we're looking at a different way in which Jesus lived his life, or the different, the different ways that Jesus did things, all sorts of different things. So the sermon title each week is The Way Jesus, Some Kind of Verb or Some Kind of Action, all right? This morning, if you'd like to take notes, even if you don't, I encourage you to write this down as our big idea today. We're looking in this passage at the way Jesus called. The way Jesus called. That's what we have here in Mark 3, specifically verses 13 through 19. Is uh, We have the official calling. He called to himself those he wanted. The, the calling and the appointment, listen closely, of Jesus' famous 12 disciples. I like the word called. It's used there a couple times in the passage. It can literally be translated, he summoned or he sent for. 
He summoned or he sent for his disciples. That's what we have going on here. That's like the spotlight, the focus of this passage is Jesus summoning people unto himself, calling people unto himself, not just any people, the famous 12 disciples. Gotta love these guys. Now, following his death and resurrection, these 12, spare Judas, minus Judas, 12 disciples would be sent out as ambassadors for Jesus to preach his good news in all the world and make disciples of all nations. Uh, This is a significant moment in history. Jesus is beginning here, in in these verses we looked at, Jesus is beginning his kingdom strategy. The way in which Jesus went about building the kingdom on the earth, it's it's best um, laid out in a book that we had our small group leaders read called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. The Master Plan of Evangelism. What it details is Jesus' strategy. Jesus' strategy wasn't to get bigger and bigger and bigger crowds, but it was to reproduce himself in disciples who would go out and do the same. That's what he's doing here. We see him leaving the crowds, calling disciples. We see the priority. It's not that it's not on conversion. Crowds are not in and of themselves bad or evil or wrong or unbiblical. But the purpose and the goal of the people gathering was to be disciples and to go out and make disciples. It was this vision for multiplication and not just addition. We see with Jesus that his goal was, listen, not not merely, rather, gatherings that make converts to make larger gatherings. That's not the goal. Let's have a gathering to make converts and to make attenders so we can get bigger gatherings And then we can like plan another big gathering over there and just let's get big crowds. No, Jesus had a crowd. He walked away from the crowd for something deeper, for something greater, for something better. Listen, bigger isn't always better. And so here's Jesus modeling this, not making converts to make a gathering larger, but making disciples, calling disciples who will go out to make more disciples. In this incredible strategy and moment here, In him calling the twelve, Jesus is also, note this, Jesus here is beginning, listen, to establish his church. He's establishing his church, of which we are a part. Aren't you thankful that Jesus had a good kingdom strategy? (laughs) Through these disciples, he's made disciples, they've made disciples, and guess what? You and I today are trusting in Jesus and bound for eternity because of this long link of chains of disciples. And that's what's, what's starting here in this moment. Jesus is establishing his church through these men who in the book of Acts will go on to be used by God to see the church birthed by the Spirit. Now when we talk about his church that he's establishing, what we're saying is Jesus is establishing, listen closely, here in this moment, he's beginning to establish a holy new holy people. A holy new Holy nation. And because the word holy can be confusing, if we use it a couple different times, let's put it up there on the screen. We mean WH holy. All right? You, should, you know, this, this is a really good holy. All right? This is another important holy going on here. We see Jesus in this moment. He's setting apart a holy new holy people and a holy new holy nation. In fact, you see the imagery there with the 12, don't you? Because Israel, which was God's original holy nation and holy people, was marked by 12, 12 tribes. And here Jesus is beginning, a, a pioneering a whole new mission for a whole new holy people, his disciples who would establish 
his church. This is the language of 1 Peter, by the way, that describes who we are as the church. We're a holy, new, holy people. It says this, that you and I are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, Jew and Gentile alike, his own special people. Aren't we special in every way, right? We're special to God. That you may proclaim, here's why he's called us to be a holy, new, holy people. That we might proclaim the praises of him who called us, called us, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who the church is. The church, ecclesia in Greek, literally means the called out ones. God calls us, na- calls us out, not like in a shameful, embarrassing way, like, oh my gosh, he called me out. But in an invitational way, he says, I'm calling you out to be a whole new holy people in Boca Raton. I'm calling you out of darkness, and you exist to put on display who I am to the world around you as a generation, a royal priesthood. It says this, we were once not a people. That's certainly true. There's a time in my life I look back and I go, yep, he was not once not a person, not a people of God. They were once not a people, but now they are the people of God. They once did not obtain mercy, but now they have. So, so this is what's going on here. Jesus is establishing his church through the disciples, beginning to do that. Now, I want to say this with this calling and with this moment that we read about. What makes this calling, this summoning of the twelve so significant is the context from which it happens. The context from which Jesus calls the twelve. We can't miss this. We can't get so tied up in the chapters and verses that we don't see what's going on in the story. When you see the context of this moment, the calling is all that much greater. The idea of a disciple, it holds greater weight. See, the context of this moment, remember, was a crowd. A, a, a group, a multitude. Mark 3 says that a multitude comes to Jesus and it, and, it, and it characterizes their behavior. This multitude that comes to Jesus, they're coming because they heard what Jesus was doing. That's what's going on. That's the Christianity of the day. They're coming to Jesus to receive from him what they need. There's not a word in here about awe and worship. There's not a word in here about surrendering their lives to God and his kingdom. Now, Jesus is going to go and heal them anyway, which is amazing. But we see this crowd that's characterized by what we could call consumer Christianity. They're coming to get what they need. They heard that this guy Jesus does some things, and Jesus will show you who he is and meet your need with who he is. But even in the next verse, we see they're about to crush Jesus because they don't really care about Jesus. They just care about what he can do for them. Now, it's out of this context, and here's what we're going to call this, consumeristic crowd Christianity, that Jesus calls his disciples. Do you see it? And we know this wasn't just a back then thing, right? Consumeristic crowd Christianity. Group of people coming together to get from Jesus what they need. No real concern for him and his kingdom. No real surrender of their lives to his purpose. And it's out of that crowd that we're going to see this crowd, by the way, takes a different shape in the end of this book. We know that, right? The same crowd coming to be healed by Jesus are going to declare, crucify him, crucify him. It's amazing how when you, when you market Christianity in a consumer form, the means in which you reach people becomes the means in which you keep people. 
And you got to just keep the consumption. Like, I've got to have enough programs for you to stay happy and stay in church. But the second it's not enough, the second you're not providing what I need, have you seen this? I'm out. I'll turn my back on you. This is not covenant. This is consumerism. And this is what we have marking this crowd. What a great vision, then, of discipleship, right? Jesus says, okay, here's the crowd. And I'm going to meet the Jesus will meet the needs of the crowd every Sunday morning. He's so faithful to show up where we need him. And yet in the, in the midst of the crowd, he steps aside. And he says, my ultimate purpose is not to satisfy a crowd. It's to call people to be my disciple. And Jesus is regularly going to do this. Have you noticed this? All throughout the Gospels, Jesus will, listen closely, Jesus draws a distinction between his fans and his followers. There's a line there in the sand that he will draw between his customers and his disciples. Jesus will regularly draw a distinction between the crowds and a Christian. Let me say, just because you are a part of a Christian crowd doesn't make you a Christian. And Jesus will proclaim this. And in fact, at times, I mean, this is kind of easy. Like, he doesn't even offend the crowd here. Like, that's to come. He just gets away with the disciples and calls them. But as things ramp up and as this crowd becomes more and more demanding, like he feeds them supernaturally when they're hungry by multiplying a kid's Lunchable. And they want more and they want more and they want more. And Jesus starts to see that their hearts are far from him. And they're neglecting what they really need in him. And they're coming to him for material things that they're not really letting him into the deepest places of their lives where they really need him to show up. And so as time goes on and this crowd is not budging, Jesus will make it regularly, listen closely, he will make it really easy for this crowd to walk away and make it really hard for them to stay. He'll start to elevate, okay, now if you're going to be my disciple, it's going to cost you. True discipleship, if it's going to be worth anything, it's got to cost you something, right? Right? And that's what he's ultimately looking to do. And let me say this. This is the why behind why he goes about it this way. Let me say it this way. The reason why Jesus will draw this distinction in your life and my life and call us from crowd consumer Christianity into discipleship is because he is serious about our deepest needs. He is serious about not just your surface level spirituality, not just your Holy Spirit feels, feels on Sunday morning. He is serious about what he knows you most deeply need in him. And he'll, he'll touch on those points that need his healing or need his freedom or need his gospel to inform and transform. He is concerned for our deepest healing, our deepest development. And let me say this. He also knows this. He also knows, especially in this moment, that that kind of consumer Christianity has a shelf life. It really does. It, there's a lack of, like, anything in Jesus that is not built on sacrifice and true surrender, it, it's got a shelf life. There's a limited capacity to endure any real pressure. And so we've had some good times in the church the past couple decades here in America. We've been able to have our happy greetings and gatherings and Jesus songs and put out Jesus music. And in the past, I want to say 20 years, but specifically five to 10 years especially, you know, there's cultural sociologists and missiologists that have studied how Christianity, there's this big turn from the 2000s into like the 2010s, where Christianity used to be seen as like a, as a, uh, a cultural positive, by and large, in the culture. It was a cultural positive. Like if you invited someone to church, I'm not saying every time, but I'm because you're like, I know a friend. I know you know a friend. But listen, most of the time, 
we all know a friend, okay? Most of the time, you'd invite someone to church back in the day, I remember this, and they'd say, I can't come to church. Why? I don't want to get struck by lightning, <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm immoral. You're the moral people, right? That's the moral thing. And then there is this, this moment, usually in the, the people market at the 2010 time, where Christianity became more of like a cultural neutral, just across the board, where cultural be, began to look on a Christianity the same way they would as Islam or New Age or any other religious path that you may take. And then you have the culture wars of the 2016s into now the 2022s where Christianity has, by and large, they're saying more and more become a cultural negative from the culture. I'm not blaming, by the way, the church for that. Like, oh, it's all the church's fault. And I think that this is really just a sign of the times in a lot of ways. At the same time, let judgment begin in the house of God, right? And you have today, you have people look on at major religious leaders that are falling left and right. They look on at the, the church's subculture tribalism they look on at the lack of neighborliness that the church, there's so many of these different characteristics that you kind of go, I understand. And, and let me say this, regardless of where we're at and, and what caused it, my mission and my vision, let me say this, for my three children is to be resilient disciples, to raise up resilient, like I want, I want disciples that don't just, like they're in Christian school, you know, that kind of thing, and it's like, okay, I'm so glad you memorized the verse at school today. What does it mean in your heart and who is Jesus really to you? And there's just this, this passion we've had recently, especially as parents, to just be like, what, what are we doing here? And I think it's time for the church, for us to go, what are we doing here? Because this has a shelf life if it's a consumer thing. If it's just a knowledge thing. If we're not making disciples, we don't have a future. If we're not raising up resilient followers of Jesus who know him and care for him and love him and have been changed by him in truth and carry that forward, what do we have? And Jesus is, is concerned for this, raising up resilient disciples. So Francis Chan as, you know, says this in a convicting way because you know he's Francis Chan and that's what he does for a living. But he says it this way. He says, when Jesus measures a church, he doesn't count it, he weighs it. He doesn't count it. What's the quant? He goes, how much depth is there? Is it a crowd or is it true disciples? Let me say the same thing for our life. When he measures your life, he doesn't count your religious activity, he weighs your heart. That's what the Bible says, the Lord weighs the heart. He sees who you really are before him. And there we have in this text, in stark contrast to that crowd Christianity, a whole new way. There's always a whole new way with Jesus that seems kind of like heavy, but it's invitational. In the midst of the crowds, in the midst of this consumer lifestyle, Jesus calls disciples and he sends them into the world calling us to be disciples. Now when he calls the disciples, I want to contrast what Jesus does with these disciples and what the crowd was experiencing, and what true discipleship to Jesus looks like in his own words. There's three directions. Go ahead and write these three words down. Very big theological words up here on the screen, all right? There's three directions that Jesus calls the disciples out of consumer crowd Christianity to be his disciples. He calls them up, he calls them in, and he calls them out. He calls them out, he calls them up, he calls them in, and he also calls them 
out. Up in out. The first thing we see Jesus doing with these disciples is we see that these disciples are called up to know him intimately. Jot that down. Jesus calls first the disciples up on the mountain to know him intimately. This is the first call of discipleship. This is where everything in your Christian life should be flowing from. A calling to know Jesus. A calling up to be with him, to know him intimately. A personal relationship is the common phrase that we use. And we see that there in the text. We see Jesus goes up, tells us that, on the mountain, and he called to himself those he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed the twelve. Look at the first thing he appoints the twelve disciples to do. These are the agents that, and ambassadors of his kingdom. And the first order of business is, I'm going to appoint you to be with me. Isn't that amazing? Before you go and get to work, you need to learn to just be with me and know me. In fact, that's where everything good is going to flow from. But we see the calling up on the mountain unto the disciples to know him. And this is same, the same thing is true for our lives today. Jesus is not just calling you to be a part of the crowd of Sunday. He's calling you into a relationship with him. Do we know this? He's calling you up the mountain to know him. And we know in scripture that the mountain is always a place of encounter. What a beautiful picture. The Bible always poetically looking back on itself and looking ahead. Jesus goes up on the mountain, a place of encounter. Think of Moses who goes up on the mountain to meet with God, to behold God, to, to move from someone who knows about God, has heard about God, who knows the things about God, to someone who is knowing God. The Bible says in Exodus that Moses knew God like a friend does face to face, beholding him, knowing him, present before him, communing with him. The idea there is Intimately knowing God. This is what you and I have been saved into. Jesus says the danger today in the church is that there's a crowd of people, Jesus says, are going to come to me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, I went to church in your name. I did taught VBS in your name. I served on setup team in your name. I did this in your name. I did all these different things in your name. And Jesus' one indictment is depart from me. I never, I never knew you. You did things for me, you knew about me, but you didn't have a relationship with me. The very thing he died to give us. And so Jesus models here what we're all invited into, this, this practice of going up on the mountain, the veil being torn so that we can know God, knowing him. This is the place in, from which we're transformed, knowing him intimately. I love the idea there again of knowing him intimately, because what, what it means to be known intimately means that there's nothing hidden. That's the beauty of intimacy. Nothing's hidden. And this is what's so cool about God. First and foremost, God invites us to know him in such a way that he says this, I'm not going to hide myself from you. Isn't that awesome? From the very beginning, God has been like, this is who I am. This is my character. This is my goodness. This is what I'm like. This is what I do. You, can know, you don't have to be left in the dark with your own assumptions about who God is. Or feelings of, God's like, come know me. That's what he said to Moses. Come up on the mountain. I'm going to declare my name to you. I'm going to tell you exactly who I am, exactly what I'm like. That, that's God inviting us into intimate knowledge of himself. Come know me in truth, not just about me, but come up close and personal and see me. And then, listen, God invites us to do the same. That's knowing someone. God, I'm going to come to you, and I'm not going to hide anything either. I'm not going to hide what I'm struggling with. I love that we sang that in that song. I'm not afraid to show you my weaknesses that you already see, right? Paul says, in fact, we get to, this is real Christian maturity. You get to the place where Paul says, actually, Paul goes, I boast in my weaknesses. 
I don't just hide them. I'm like, I got weaknesses. So many. You want to know them? That's, a, that's Paul. He goes, because when I boast in my weaknesses, I'm actually giving opportunity for my strength and my power, my confidence, not to be in myself, but to be in God and his power. And so this is what we're invited into, though. This honesty before God is he is honest with us about who he is. This communion, this oneness, this knowing of God. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him. Now, I want to say something that's really cool about this is you actually, I want you to know this, as a New Testament Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, saved by the blood of Jesus, adopted into the family of God, you don't have to go up the mountain to be with him. You know what Jesus says to his disciples? He says, actually, here's the deal. I'm with you always. Isn't that cool? You know what relationship with God is? It's this. It's being with the one who's always with you. He appoints you to be with him. Just be with him as he's always with you. Wherever you are, here's the good news. He's with you. Be with him. Be with him as he's with you. Now, certainly there's practices. Like, I got to go up on the mountain. I got to get alone, you know, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Sometimes I got to turn bubble guppies on and close the door. Unpaid babysitter, all right? And I need to go up the mountain of secrecy. And, and Jesus calls us to know the Father in that secret and private way. But, but when we leave our prayer closet, when we leave our prayer moment, it's not like I just left Jesus at my house and I'm going to work. No, he appoints them to be with him. You're with him as you rise. You're with him as you go. Be with him at work. Be with him in your trial. Don't look at any moment as an obstacle to be with him, but look at every moment as an opportunity to be with him. How can I be with Jesus in this trial? How can, here's, this is one, ready? How can I be with Jesus in this conflict? Right, because we tend to think of like, even especially marital conflict. You ever have one of those? Oh, you didn't come to our marriage conference. That's why. Okay, all right. Or you did, because you knew you needed it, right? And it's like, Jesus, my, he's like over there waiting. I'll be with you in a second, Lord. I'm over here in my problems and in my, con-. like we tend to think that way. With life and our own messiness, like he's with us in the mess and he wants us to be with him in the mess. Inviting Jesus, that's a disciple. A disciple doesn't just know about him, but a disciple knows him intimately. This is the apostle Paul when he encountered Jesus He said, this is what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, I have, in encountering Jesus, Paul Paul spent his entire lifetime um, purposed on, here was his life goal spiritually. This might be some of ours, and we've got to turn from this today. His life goal was climbing the ladder of religious and righteous achievement. Just leveling up more and more with God. And then when when he'd fall, it was like he went down the ladder. That was his mindset. So, he, you know, you're only as good as your last best, best day, spiritually. And you're defined by whatever your worst day or worst season of life is. Sometimes bad days turn to worse, you know, seasons. We know that. And Paul played that game for a long time until he encountered the gospel of grace, until he met God, until he met Jesus. He was knocked off his high horse, literally. Like, literally, probably hurt his back, to be honest, you know. And Paul, after encountering Jesus, this is, this is the cry of his life. He's like, I've done the religious thing. He says, but what things were gained to me? I've counted these lost for Christ. He says this, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. The all things there isn't like, you know, money, cars, and houses. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about religious activity. I've counted that as nothing for Jesus that I may gain him, he says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law and law-keeping, but that which is through faith in Jesus, through the gospel, through Jesus' righteousness that's given to me through faith. 
He says this, notice this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I just love this heart cry from Paul. Paul's like, I've given up all the wasteful time of religious activity for the sole purpose of like, listen, if, I can't, if I'm not knowing him, what am I doing? If I'm not knowing him, what are we doing? We need to know him. That's what he calls us into. Now, he doesn't just call us up to know Jesus intimately. The disciples are also, second direction, they were called up, they were also called in. This one's a little harder on a day-to-day basis for our different personalities, not just because we're different, but also because some of us are more inclined to community. Some of us are more declined, maybe, to community. I don't know what the opposite of that is. Let's just act like that's the right word, okay? Jesus calls the disciples up the mountain to know him intimately, but he also, I want you to notice, he calls, calls them in to follow Jesus together, collectively. It says that he went up on the mountain and he called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. It was a collective call. This is, there, there, you know, there is no Jesus and me Christianity in the Bible. Uh, scripture says, let not one part of the body say to the other, I have no need of you. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. No, you, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus if you're not knowing him through his church. So Jesus, come know me together. I love the way that this, this is just the best way that this section ends. And they went into a house. I love that. You know, first community group, right here, all right? Calls them to know him, and this, this is the picture here. He's saying, you're going to walk with me together. You're going to follow me collectively. Um, and, and let me say that Jesus is still doing this today. Um, Jesus, listen, all that Jesus wants for your life, can I tell you, it's found on the other side of community. It's found on the other side of walking with him as a family, and he will regularly, he'll, and he'll do it here at Solace, because we, we harp on this, this is a, a, you know, we got like a couple strings in our guitar, this is definitely one of them, that Jesus, listen, calls you out of the crowd into community. He's calling you out of the crowd. C- keep coming, we love you here on Sunday, keep coming to the crowd. But there should be some point in your life where you say, Jesus, I- I'm obeying you, I'm a disciple, I'm following you in the messiness of community. I'm in a community group, hello. I'm going, like, it didn't say they went to the middle school, right? They went to a house, okay? So the idea there is they're, they're following him as deep as community is calling them. They're following him as deep as community is calling him. And this is certainly the vision for our lives that Jesus gives us for the church in the New Testament. You know, there's so many different community verses that we look at each week. One that I've been thinking about recently is how Paul in Ephesians 5 is, is talking about a spirit live life spirit-filled and a spirit-lived life. And he says, one of the characteristics of the Holy Spirit in your life, the evidence of his, of his work in your life, is that you're submitting to one another in the fear of God. Isn't that an interesting description of what the church is to do? So I need, I, I need to gather with the church on Sunday. I need to receive the word of God. We need to, as, as God's people, we're a holy, new, holy people that are here to worship him. But there must be a point in my life if I'm a disciple, where I'm submitting to other Christians. I'm submitting my life. Like, here's a dangerous place to be. Like, you are only submitted unto yourself. You're your own authority. You're your own guidance. You're your own counselor. We see this picture of submitted to one another. Interesting idea. And it's not like a power trip authority thing. It's like we're all in this together. <laughs> we all got issues and we all need each other. Amen? So it's not like you submit to me. 
as I lead you, you know? It's we're submitted to one, we're submitted to what God's doing through one another. We're, we're su- submission to one another looks like I value what God wants to say to me through you. I value your eyes on my life. I value your relationship enough to put myself under you as a friend, not just next to you. And this is really where community builds up when, when it goes from community to mutual submission to one another. You know what I mean? There's a level here that we grow in. But nonetheless, that's, that's it. That's the point. I've had a lot to say about this, but check out a past sermon. We'll get some more. All right, next and last concept here is we see Jesus calls the disciples to serve him powerfully. This is the last thing we see Jesus doing. He calls them to know him intimately out of the crowd, not just to be a member of the crowd consuming Christianity, but coming and knowing him in relationship. He calls the disciples to follow him together despite the messiness and the political differences in that group are astounding. The, the, the different backgrounds are, are, are insane of this, of this group of people that he, he names here. But then he calls them, it tells us there in Mark 3.14, that he appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out, up in and out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to have power to even cast out demons. So we, we see a really beautiful order of things here. Um, Jesus doesn't send them out before first calling them to be with him. And that, that's certainly true, that we can't serve Jesus apart from him. And, and intimacy with God is what leads to our ministry. Ministry is really just the overflow of your intimacy with God. That's what it is. Jesus talked about it being living water. The Holy Spirit's filling your life, and, and it just overflows to people around you. So what a great vision of ministry. Come be with me. And from that place of intimacy, and by the way, we all know what it feels like when it's the opposite, right? Where you're just doing with no intimacy. So our old, our old serve form at Solus, it, we used to have like a pretty extensive serve form that made you answer almost every one of life's questions to, to start serving here. We've, we've trimmed it down since then. But one of the questions was, you know, we have a heart to see ministry for Jesus flow from intimacy with Jesus. Because I know what it takes to start a church, to keep a church going, to, to, to gather like this. It takes a lot of effort, and it can be very easy to substitute a relationship with God with service for God. What I do for you. And, and people are saying, wow, what you're doing is amazing, and like that's kind of wind in your sail to just keep on serving without him. And that can be a dangerous place to be. And so that we see a proper order is intimacy with him is what leads to ministry for him. But I, I want you to also notice the other side of that is being with him leads to ministry for him. Like some of us are like, yeah, man, that's me. I'm just, you know, I'm, a, I'm just in this, I've given too much and now I'm just here to receive. And it's been four years of me receiving. It's like, well, why does, why does he want to pour out on your life? Think about that. Why, why does he have you in this place of receiving? Is it not to be able to pour that out into lives of, of people around you? So being with him is the prerequisite to serving him. But if we're with him, it's going to push us out to serve him. That's the idea. Jesus never calls us in without the intent of sending us back out. That's the picture. He sends them out, I love this, with power to proclaim him. With power over the demonic forces that were opposing him, with power to bring the kingdom of God to the lives of those around them. Um, This is the same language and description of what Jesus says to the church today. He told the disciples 
that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And it's through that power that we're witnesses wherever we are in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Power to be, power to proclaim, power to serve him mightily. Now this is a vision again of discipleship. Um, Jesus will go on to say this. We'll we'll read this um, in Mark chapter 8 or Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now that doesn't mean that, that you don't ever need to be served. That doesn't mean that you don't need ministry. That doesn't mean that Jesus won't meet you right where you are. But this does mean that as you're being served by Jesus, the direction of your life is going to be moving outward towards serving others. Called out from the crowd to not just be a consumer, but listen, a contributor with the gifts God's given you, with the resources God's given you, with the time God's given you to serve him and his mission. So, so the question to ask you would be like, what's your Jerusalem, right? What's your region? Where has God placed you? Where are you right now? And how can you begin to change your perspective? How can you begin to see where you are as a mission field that God has put you with his power, and that's the best part there, right? I love that. Jesus has this power, and he's like, here you go, disciples. This is what you need to do what I'm calling you to do. He doesn't say, hey, try your best. Convert the lost. Disciple the saved. Go for it. He says, you're going to need this. It's my power to serve me. We come to him for that same power today. Now, we'll close on this thought, and I'll invite the, the team to come back out to, uh, to lead us in our moment here of reflection. And as they do, I, I want to draw our attention to one more thought here that I think is just the most beautiful in all the calling here. Certainly, we just saw this beautiful display by Jesus of what discipleship is. We're called out of the consumer crowd to be a disciple. But the thing that really struck me was Mark 3.13 where it says that he called the, the disciples, I love this, that he himself wanted It's amazing. You know, it's especially amazing to think about when it says Judas Iscariot was one of those 12, isn't it? He calls to himself those he himself wanted. Like, is there not a greater longing in each one of our hearts? Don't we all want to be wanted? Now imagine that the one whose wanting and desire matters most is true over your life today. Fathom this for, the, for a second. You don't just need to be a disciple for Jesus. Don't hear that message today. Hear Jesus looking on at your life and saying, I want you. I want you. I want you to be my disciple. In fact, that's why you'll ever be one is because I wanted you to be one in the first place. This isn't about you and being, you, know, you being wantable or being qualified. I mean, you look at this ragtag bunch and you'll see the disciples throughout this book and you're just like, those are the guys he picked? Those are not first, second, third round disciple draft picks. Let me tell you that. Those are undrafted, you know. Those are, those are, those are, are the, of all men, those are the last ones that anybody would pick. Especially like a guy like Judas who Jesus knew would betray him. Yet, you want them. He goes on to tell his disciples in John 15, 15. I don't just call you servants. 
servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I'm, I'm calling you friends. This is a calling into relationship. He's chosen them. This is what it says in Ephesians 1.3. I love this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, look at this, chose us, wanted us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is where this all has to come back to. We don't follow Jesus as disciples. We don't live together in community. We don't serve him powerly because it's our, our Christian duty. Be a better Christian. Be a better disciple. No, you stop for a second. You look at your own life. You see that you and I are not too dissimilar from Judas. We've all turned our back on the Lord. We, we, we've all disengaged and neglected a relationship with God. Listen, we've all been the crowd. And Jesus still says, I want you. I love you. I've called you. I've died for you. I have a plan for you. I've got more for you. See, this is the Christian faith. It's just a bunch of people who know who they are apart from him responding to an invitation. Of him saying, I want you to follow me. I want you to know me. I want you. I don't want you because you've cleaned your act up. I don't want you because you've become wantable. But I want you because I love you. And that's the invitation. And all of Christianity is just a response to that, isn't it? We love him because he first loved us. Like he loves you right now just as you are. He's loved you before you did that thing. And he continues to love you. We seek him because he first sought us. And certainly we want to be his disciple because he first wanted us to be his disciple. And wherever you're at with that today, I would just encourage you to respond, as we said. Maybe the call is to come and know him intimately. Maybe you need to leave the crowd of religion and you need to step into that invitation of knowing him personally. And if there's things standing in the way of that, I love how Jessica described that in the beginning. You, you don't have to work to knock those walls down to come to Jesus. You need to see the finished work of the cross that already demoed that wall. And just come as you are right now to him. Say, Jesus, I'm back to you. I repent of my sin. Thank you for your forgiveness. I come to you. I access your accessible presence to know you. Maybe for you it's community and you're like, you know, I, I need to step out of the consumer crowd and be known and submit myself to some godly and Christian friends. I need, to, I need to move from going to church in a cafetorium and I need to start going to church in a home where community happens, where relationship happens. And maybe for you it's a call to serve him powerfully. You've been walking with him. But now he's calling you to double down on your life's purpose, which is his kingdom and his glory and his mission. Wherever you're at today, know ultimately Jesus wants you, Jesus loves you, and he calls you to know him. So would you stand with me? We're going to sing this last song. It's a moment of reflection. And it's a chance for us to just recenter our hearts on his love. As we go out into this week, we want to build upon him and what he's done for us. So let's take a moment together to create a, a, just really for you, it's a secret place between you and Jesus right now where you are. Tune everyone else out. It's a moment for you and the Lord to connect in light of this invitation.